A reading from the New Testament, Acts 13, verse 41, and, be, and following. I'm reading from the New King James Version of the Bible. Please join me in following this, this uh, word of God for us. Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish, for I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe, though one were to declare it to you. So when the Jews went out to the, of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Now when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and contradicting and blaspheming, they opposed the things spoken by Paul. Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, it is necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. But since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles, for so the Lord has commanded us. I have set you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. Now, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region. But the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women and the chief men of the city, raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and expelled them from their region. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and came to Iconium, and the disciples were filled with the joy and with the Holy Spirit. May God bless the hearing of this word. Thank you. Amen. Thank you, Fred. Let's all pray together today as we come to this text in God's Word and consider its importance for us. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, how grateful we are again to be in your presence and for the privilege of coming before your holy word this day. And we ask that as we do, you would be with us and that you would help us to understand and that you would use your word, Father, to continue this work that you have begun in us of sanctifying us and transforming us by renewing our minds and conforming us into the image of the glory of your blessed Son, Jesus Christ. Father, may the words of my mouth this morning and may the meditations of our hearts this morning be pleasing in your sight, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So as we come together today to the end of Acts chapter 13, We are coming to the end of this awesome, majestic sermon that Paul preached in the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch where he has proclaimed 
with all of the authority and all of the power of the Holy Spirit working through him, that Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of God, who is God the Son, and in whom all of God's eternal purposes for all of history are gloriously culminated, and in whom all of the eternal promises of God are gloriously fulfilled, and in whom all of the redeeming work of God is gloriously accomplished. And it has been our privilege these past few weeks to revel together in all of the infinite greatness and all of the eternal glory of the God-man, Jesus Christ, who He is and what He has done, and the fact that He has known us, and the fact that He has loved us with an eternal, redeeming, self-sacrificing love since before the foundations of the world were even laid. What a wonderful truth that is. So today, in the, in the, in the wake of this great sermon of Paul's, Luke records for us here at the end of Acts 13 that Paul and Barnabas, after Paul preached the sermon, they gave to everybody who heard this gospel message, they gave this great sobering warning from the pages of Old Testament Scripture itself, from the mouth of God Himself, a warning to not reject this gospel. And then Luke shows us several different responses to the gospel message there in Pisidian Antioch that are typical of the various ways that human beings in general respond when they hear God's word calling them to repent of their sins and to call upon the name of Jesus Christ for salvation. And as we come to this passage today, I want to preface it by highlighting to you the words that Jesus Christ himself spoke in Matthew chapter 10, verse 34. You don't need to turn there. Just let me read these few words where Jesus says that he did not come to bring peace to the earth, but to bring a sword and to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother. Now, what did Jesus mean by those words? He didn't come to bring peace, but a sword that would divide people from one another. Well, isn't Jesus the Prince of Peace? When He was born, didn't the angels sing glory to God in the highest and on earth? Peace, right? Among men with whom He is pleased. Yeah. The angels sang that. And Jesus is the Prince of Peace, but the peace that Jesus came to give, the peace that Jesus came to make, is a peace between sinful men and the Holy God, which Jesus accomplished by the shedding of His own blood on the cross. Right, Colossians chapter 1, verses 19-20, through 20, For in Him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. 
So, Jesus, the self-sacrificing, suffering servant, Jesus makes peace between sinful men and the holy God by way of the blood of His cross. And the reality is this, that while many people will accept Jesus as the only possible way unto that peace with God, many others will reject Jesus and reject that gospel message. In Matthew chapter 12 and verse 30, Jesus said, Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. In John chapter 14 and verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way, not a way. I am the only way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Right? Make no mistake, the claims of Jesus Christ and the claim of His Gospel is an absolutely exclusive claim. He is either accepted or He is outright rejected and there is no third category. There is no neutral ground. And so the Gospel that brings peace between God and man is like a sword that divides people from one another as many people reject it and thereby reject God and reject eternal life. And that is exactly what we see going on here in Acts chapter 13 as Paul preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ and as people respond to that gospel. Many accept it and many reject it. And that's what lies behind this sober warning that Paul gives in verses 40 and 41 here of Acts chapter 13. He's just got done preaching that because of who Jesus is, right, as the only eternally begotten Son of God, we learned about three weeks ago, and because of what Jesus did by taking our sins upon Himself on the cross and covering us with His perfect righteousness, because of who He is uniquely and what He has done that He alone could do, He is the only way. He is the only one who exists that could ever possibly save us from the consequences of our own sin and reconcile us to the Holy God and give us everlasting salvation and everlasting life and everlasting hope. And so Paul says, having proclaimed Him, he says, Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. And then he quotes from the prophets. He quotes from Habakkuk chapter 1 and verse 5. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells you. And what Habakkuk was talking about way back in his day was the sovereign purpose of God to bring judgment and destruction on Israel for the sin of rejecting Him, even though He had so clearly revealed Himself to them and been so merciful to them. Yet they rejected Him. And Habakkuk was complaining about that, right? 
God, how long are you going to go on being merciful? How long are you going to overlook this sin? How long are you going to leave it undealt with? When are you going to do something about the sin of Israel? And God says, I'm going to do something you wouldn't believe even if, even if I told you. I'm going to raise up the Chaldeans and they are going to lay waste to Israel as an accomplishment of my purposes of judgment for their sin of rejecting me. So see here, Paul in Acts 13 is invoking those same words of Habakkuk in the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch because he has proclaimed the truth and the nature and the glory and the mercy of God to these people. And he is now warning these people not to reject the one true gospel. Not to reject the one and only name under heaven by which men may be saved. Not to reject Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, as their only hope of salvation. Because to do that, to reject Him, to reject the Gospel, is to reject the only hope. The only hope of being delivered from the wrath of God that is to come. And to reject that is, is the same kind of rejection as, as rejecting a parachute if you've fallen out of an airplane as your only hope of surviving that fall. And don't say, well, people have survived falling out of airplanes without parachutes before. I know, I know. It's not a perfect analogy, right? Unless 100% of people who fall out of airplanes necessarily die. The point is this, if you fall out of an airplane without a parachute and someone else in the airplane who's wearing a parachute grabs another parachute, jumps out after you and says, here, put on the parachute, and you say, you know, I'm good. I don't really believe I need a parachute. As you're falling at terminal velocity towards the ground beneath you, or worse, if you say, no, I'm good because I don't really believe in parachutes. <laughs> or worse, I don't really believe in gravity. If you say those things, then you're a fool. Because the reality of gravity doesn't depend on your belief. And there are severe consequences for your unbelief. That's what Paul's saying here. In the one true gospel of Jesus Christ, the eternal triune God speaks to us in no uncertain terms, black and white terms. Repent of your sin and accept Jesus alone as your Savior, and by God's mercy you will live forever in peace with Him. But reject Him because you don't believe what He says about the eternal seriousness of your sin or about the eternal consequences of your sin or about the one and only solution to your sin and you will perish forever in the torment of His eternal righteous holy wrath against sin. There's no third way. And in the rest here of Acts chapter 13 we see Several different responses to this gospel and to this warning, to this call of the gospel, only one of which leads 
to salvation and everlasting life. The first response, verses 42 and 43, is the response of initial interest. The second response, verses 44 through 47, is the response of jealous rejection of the gospel. And the last response, verses 48 and 49, is the response of joyful acceptance. And there is only one way that leads to eternal life. So look at verse 42 here with me. Luke records, after Paul got done preaching in the synagogue, he says, as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. Initially, after Paul preached the gospel, initially there was a ton of interest. There was even a ton of enthusiasm, even excitement about the gospel, wasn't there? People were literally begging Paul to preach more of this truth to them. And then in verse 44 it says that a week later on the next Sabbath, almost the entire city came out and gathered to hear the word of the Lord preached. I mean, it's, a, it's every preacher's dream. What if all of Santa Cruz showed up next Sunday? What if 50,000 people were packed around here next Sunday? Huge crowds, massively positive response. And yet, Paul and Barnabas are smart enough and wise enough to know that initial responses to the gospel aren't always genuine responses to the gospel. Why? Well, because Jesus himself taught that, right? In the parable of the soils. For one place, in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus pictured a farmer sowing seeds in a field. Now some of the seeds, you remember, fell on the path beside the field and they were immediately snatched away by the birds before they could germinate, before they could sprout at all. And those represented an outright, an immediate rejection of the gospel. People hear it and they instantly hate it. Or they scoff at it, or they conclude that they don't need it, and so they just reject it out of hand. But then there were the seeds that did fall into the soil and sprouted in several different ways, right? Some of them had fallen on rocky kinds of soil. And so even though they sprouted, eventually they withered and died under the scorching heat of the sun because they never really fully took root in the soil. And those represent people who have some kind of response to the gospel positively. They have interest. They're emotionally excited about it. They might intellectually appreciate it. They might pragmatically identify with it somehow. But then... Jesus says, then, when the trials of life come, like the scorching heat of the sun, 
then they wither away. Because their affinity for the gospel isn't actually deeply and fully rooted in a living faith in Jesus Christ that causes them to be able to persevere and endure through those trials because of the great hope of heaven that is laid up for him or with him. The hope of the gospel is not enough for them, see, to endure. And so they end up looking for hope somewhere else in this world and rejecting Christ. And then there were the seeds that fell into the soil, but when they sprouted, the the plant that started to grow up got tangled up in the thorns of other plants. And so they got choked out, and they withered, and they died. And those represent, Jesus said, people who have an initially positive response to Jesus and the Gospel and the Word of God, but then the sinful temptations of this world choke them out, and they end up dying. And see, neither of those two kinds of sprouting seeds in rocky soil, seeds in thorny soil, neither of those represent genuine saving faith in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus says, the one who has true faith is the one who does what? Perseveres until the end. So in that parable that Jesus told in Matthew 13 there were finally those seeds that were deeply rooted through faith in Him. And so when the trials came, when the sufferings came, when the temptations came, they endured with patient hope and growing faithfulness and obedience to Jesus. They continued to bear fruit. They continued to grow all the way until the end. That's what Jesus teaches everywhere in the Gospels, right? John chapter 15, He is the vine, we are the branches, and it's the vines that abide in Him. It's the vines that remain in Him. It's the vines that bear fruit in Him and grow in fruitfulness until the end. Those are the ones that have life. Those are the ones that belong to Him. But the ones that end up not bearing fruit after a time... What happens to them? Jesus says they get cut off and thrown into the fire because they don't truly abide in Him. They don't truly have life in Him. And that is demonstrated by the fact that they don't remain in Him and increase in fruitful obedience to Him. Now Paul knows all of this, right? Paul understands that the true life in Jesus Christ is the one that perseveres, that remains, that abides, that endures, and grows in fruitfulness until the end. Colossians chapter 1, listen to verses 21 through 23. Paul says this to the Christians in the church in Colossae. He says, And you who were once alienated and hostile in your mind, doing evil deeds, now God has reconciled in His body of flesh by His death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. I mean, wonderful, right? Good news. Hallelujah. It's the Gospel. Jesus has reconciled us to God. Jesus will present us holy and blameless before God. Amen. And then... 
there's this big giant if in the very next verse. He will present us holy and blameless before God if, indeed, we continue in the faith. Stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a minister. And you say, well, wait a minute. There's not supposed to be any conditions on this, right? The gospel is that we're saved by faith alone, apart from good works on our part, right? There there can't be any ifs, can there? Paul says there's an if. On the one hand, he says loud and clear in Romans 3, verse 28, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law, right? We We learned about that last week. You can't earn your salvation. You can't merit your justification by way of good works. Only Jesus can do what the law, weakened by our sinful flesh, could never ever do. When it comes to salvation, true justification before God, true salvation from sin, it only comes by faith alone in the work that Jesus did for us. And, if, That faith is real faith. If it's the faith that the Holy Spirit creates, if it's living faith in the living Lord Jesus Christ, then it necessarily and it definitionally changes us. Crucifies us with Him. Raises us to newness of life in Him. Transforms us by the renewing of our minds progressively conforms us into the image of Jesus' glory from one level of glory to the next. Causes us more and more necessarily to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ and more and more to bear fruit for His glory. Paul says all of these things throughout the New Testament. And the fruit is what? It's, It's good works. They're not the basis of your justification, but they are the result. They are the product of true and saving faith. Good works, righteousness, obedience, the holiness without which no one will see the Lord, as the book of Hebrews says. So Paul knows that people who are truly reconciled to God through faith in Him are people who will continue in the faith. As he says there in Colossians, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel, not withering when trials come, not getting choked out by temptations, but enduring and persevering until the end. Paul knows that the people who don't continue in the faith, who don't remain stable and steadfast in the midst of trials and temptations, the people who do shift from the hope of the gospel are like those seeds that fell among the rocks and the thorns. Whatever initial response they had to the gospel wasn't truly rooted through true and living faith to the risen Jesus Christ. Because if it was, they would have persevered until the end. I have known people who have such a profound intellectual grasp of the Word of God and the Gospel 
and the great truths that God reveals here. Such a passionate thirst to learn the great doctrines and truths that God reveals. And then they ended up, because of temptation usually, they ended up turning away from it all. Walking away from it all. Rejecting it all. Because ultimately, they wanted to anchor their hope and their confidence to the treasures and the pleasures of this world instead of to Jesus. I have known so many people who had such a powerfully emotional response to the gospel when they first heard it, but then eventually they ended up falling away from it. They had some pragmatic affinity for the truth of God's Word. They saw the practical benefits of following God's precepts and laws, but they ended up trusting in their own works for salvation instead of trusting Christ. See, true living faith that the Holy Spirit creates and gives as a gift involves so much more than just understanding the truth in our brains. It also necessarily involves assenting to the truth. Not only do I get it, but I accept that it is true. And not only do I accept that it is true, I trust it in a way that transforms the very way that I live my life. In a way that necessarily produces growing, persevering obedience and holiness in my life. Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 14 says, We have come to share in Christ. That means to share in His death, to share in His resurrection, to share in His righteousness, to share in His everlasting life. We have come, Hebrews 3 says, to share in Christ if, if indeed we hold our confidence firm to the end. Which means, see, that people who do not hold their confidence in the Gospel and the truth of God's Word and in His holiness, firm until the end, it means they never really did come to share in Christ in the first place. We have come to share in Christ if. It's a first-class conditional clause in Greek. If the next thing isn't true, the first thing isn't true. You've only come to share in Christ if you hold firm until the end. If you don't, it means you never shared in Him, in His life, in His righteousness, in His death, in His resurrection, in the first place. So you say, well then, how do I know if I have come to share in Christ? Because every day I sin. Every day I stumble. What if that sin I just committed, what if that stumble that I just took means that I don't truly share in Him? Well, here's how you know, Christian. When you sin, and you will, because sin remains in all of us, and will only be fully free of its presence in glory. So when you sin, when you stumble, in the walk of faith, when you stumble along the race of life in Jesus Christ, when the sin that so easily entangles us, Hebrews chapter 12, does entangle you along the race, what do you do? 
You give up? We watched the other night, we were watching the Olympics. And we were watching, I think it was the 400 meter just run, right? One, one big sprint lap around the track. Eight guys. And one of the guys crossed over to the inside lane in front of some of the other runners and got his feet tangled up. Entangled, Hebrews 12. With the feet of one of the other runners. And this guy went down on that track hard. And we all went, oh, that hurt. He hit hard. And all of the other runners are sprinting ahead and there's only one lap. There's no way that that guy wins that race. So what does he do? Does he sit there and just say, I give up? Does he walk back to the locker room? Now this guy got up and ran to the finish line even though he couldn't catch up to the other runners. And his time ended up being much worse. But you know what he did? He finished the race. You're going to stumble. You're going to fall. And in Christ, there is always the grace already available in abundant supply, the strength already available in abundant supply to get up and to keep on running, to keep on growing in obedience, in holiness, to keep on putting sin to death, to keep on putting on the righteousness of Christ, to keep on persevering through the trials, through the temptations, and to run the race with endurance until the end. Until you die and meet your Savior, or until He returns and brings you home. Until then, when you stumble and when you fall, Jesus looks upon you with love and patience and kindness and grace and says to you, it's okay, get up, keep running. Finish the race. Finish well. And all of the strength and all of the grace that you need to do it is already yours in Him. Keep running. That's what you do and that's how you know. In Pisidian Antioch, there was this massively positive initial response to the gospel. They were literally begging to hear more. And Paul and Barnabas, it says in verse 43, what did they do? Well, here's what they didn't do. They didn't go, wonderful, the whole city's going to heaven. They saw this massively positive response and they urged everybody, verse 43 says, to continue in the grace of God because they knew that initial enthusiasm does not by any means always mean genuine saving faith. It's great that you're responding. We're thrilled. You've got to continue now. Don't let it fizzle out. You've got to grow. You've got to persevere. Well, for how long, Paul? Until the very end, all the way. Well, how, Paul? In the grace, he says, of God. Grace is the fuel, see? The gospel is the power. 
that changes our hearts and transforms our lives and makes us want to be holy as God is holy. The kindness of God is what leads us to repentance, Romans 2 says. The love of God in the Gospel, when it's clung to with living faith, forges love for God in our hearts, which necessarily leads to growing and fruitful obedience to Him. If you love Me, Jesus said in John 14-15, you will do what? Keep My commandments. So let the love of God, by the grace of God, thrive in your heart. Continue in the grace, they say. Otherwise, if your confidence doesn't hold firm to the end, if you don't continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, if you shift from the hope of the Gospel, if you don't just fall down, but you fall away, if you don't get up and keep running with the endurance that God's grace empowers, then you don't truly share in the life of Jesus. Then you aren't truly rooted by living faith to Him. And so Paul and Barnabas urged the people to continue in the grace of God. And the following week, the whole city just about came out to hear the Word of God. And then it became clear, didn't it, that not everybody truly believed. Some of the ones who were initially interested, tell us more, tell us more. Some of the ones who were even enthusiastic about the message the week before, ended up rejecting it a week later. Verse 45, when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him, blaspheming. And so see, here's where the sword of the gospel divides between those who genuinely did accept it by living faith as new creations in Christ Jesus and those who ended up rejecting it because their hearts remained hard. Their hearts remained in dominion to sin. Luke says it was some of the Jewish people there in Pisidian Antioch who ended up rejecting the gospel, contradicting Paul's teaching, twisting, distorting the truth, promoting false teaching instead. And that they were even reviling Paul himself personally, trying to undermine Paul. Trying to, trying to undercut his reputation and the veracity of his teaching before the other people in the city so that they might not trust Paul and listen to him anymore. And Luke tells us that the reason why some of these Jewish people did that, rejected Paul, rejected the Gospel, rejected Jesus Christ... The reason why was because of jealousy, envy. Now in part, they were jealous because some of the ones who were jealous were were leaders of the synagogue there in Pisidian Antioch. They were jealous of Paul. Because in just one week, Paul had become a much more popular preacher than any of them had ever dreamed of being. 
In a very, very short amount of time, Paul had generated much more interest and and had a much greater impact on the city than they had ever had. But also, and mainly, this is probably the biggest sense in which the Jewish people were jealous in the wake of Paul's preaching. They were jealous as Jews that Paul was preaching that the salvation of God in Jesus Christ was being given to the Gentiles. Hordes of Gentiles had flocked from the city to the synagogue because they were so excited to hear that the one true God had graciously given the Savior to all of them. Not just the Jews, but to the Gentiles and to the whole world. And that absolutely incensed many of the Jews who held the Gentiles in so much contempt. Who believed that they, the Jews, were were superior. That they they were God's chosen nation. The Gentile, were, they were the outcasts. They were the scum of the earth. They can't be in equal footing with us. They thought the blessings of God were reserved primarily for them. And so, see, in the sinful pride that dominated their hearts, they ended up rejecting, they ended up repudiating the gospel. And that's where all rejection of Christ comes from the sinful pride of our hearts. Now this is why Paul and Barnabas responded to them in the way that they did. In verses 46 and 47, it says they spoke spoke boldly in response to the Jews who were repudiating the gospel. They weren't intimidated by this opposition. They didn't cower They didn't start to walk back their message, right? They didn't soften it and say, well, hey, hold on. Maybe we can make this a little more palatable to you so that we can all be in agreement. They didn't try to make everyone happy with the message. They didn't try to appease the ones who were indignant with the message. Because they didn't care about the approval of men. They cared about the glory of God. They cared about the reality of the gospel's power to save the lost. And they were confident in the veracity. They were confident in the power of God's word. And they were confident in God's sovereignty to save whom he would save. And so when the Jews reviled them, they said, Listen, it was necessary that the Word of God be spoken to you Jews first, right? God had sent the Messiah through the Jewish nation. God had brought salvation into this world through the Jewish nation. And so, it was good, it was proper that the preaching of the Gospel began with the Jews. But it was never supposed to stop there. It was supposed to go out from there to the ends of the earth as a light for the Gentiles which is what God had said in the Old Testament through the prophet Isaiah. But it wasn't even as though the Jews accepted the gospel that then refused to share it with the Gentiles. That wasn't their big problem, right? They rejected the gospel itself out of hand. Verse 46 says they thrust it aside. We don't want it. We don't believe in parachutes. We don't believe in gravity. We don't believe in Christ. We don't believe the gospel. 
They shoved it aside. And by doing that, Paul said they judged themselves unworthy of eternal life. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. From this point on, they're our target audience. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, and here's where he quotes from Isaiah, I have made you a light for the Gentiles so that you may bring salvation to the very ends of the earth. In rejecting the gospel, the Jews judged themselves unworthy of eternal life. How do you understand that statement? Here's here's how we need to understand that statement. In fact, turn over with me to the book of Matthew and look at Matthew chapter 22. This is is what Paul means when he says you have been judged or you have judged yourselves worthy or unworthy of eternal life. Matthew chapter 22, look at just verse 1. In Matthew 22, Jesus spoke another parable. This parable is about a king who gave a a wedding feast, a lavish wedding feast for his son. Verse 1 says, Imagine the feast that a king with all of the resources in the world could put on in honor of his son's wedding. Imagine the catering. Imagine the quality of the food, the quality of the wine. Imagine what an awesome feast that would be and how awesome it would be to be at that feast, right? The king sent his servants out to call all of the ones who had been invited to come to the feast, but verses 2 and 3 say the invited ones wouldn't come. And so the king sent more servants, and and, and he said, maybe maybe we just need to explain to them how awesome this feast is going to be, how lavish this feast is going to be, verses 4 and 5, and yet still, verse 5 says, they still refused to come. They went off to their own farms. They went off to their own businesses. They they contented themselves with what they had. They didn't think they needed what the king had to offer. And in fact, they resented the king for insinuating that they needed something from him. And so they seized some of the king's servants and beat them and murdered them, verse 6 says. And the king was angry, verse 7, and unleashed justice on the murderers. And then the king said in verse 8, The feast is ready, but the ones who were invited were not worthy. This is what Paul has in mind in Acts 13. So what's the king do? He sends his servants back out, and he says, Just go anywhere you can, along any road you can, and invite anyone you can find to come to the feast. So they went out, the servants did, and they gathered anyone they found, all that they found, both good and bad, verse 10 says. And then the wedding was filled with guests. Now think about that. This is exactly what's going on in Pisidian Antioch, isn't it? The ones who were invited first but weren't worthy represent the Jews. We, we preached the gospel to you first, but you, didn't, you wouldn't come. So we're going to the Gentiles. 
And notice here in Matthew 22 what the unworthiness is in reference to. Their unworthiness didn't have to do with whether they were good or bad people, did it? Because when the others were invited, they were both bad and good, Jesus said right there in verse 10. Now it's a parable. Jesus isn't saying that there are some people who are sinful and other people who aren't sinful. That's not His point. His point in the parable is that the unworthiness of the first group of people who were invited, their unworthiness was based entirely on their rejection of the invitation. And that's exactly what Paul means in Acts chapter 13. Whereas here in the parable, lots of people in the second group who were invited, regardless of any circumstance about their lives, of any status that they had in this world, they were just invited, all of them, just come. They accepted the invitation. It's the rejection of the invitation that makes them unworthy. This is what Paul and Barnabas are saying, the exact same thing in Acts 13 to the Jews in Pisidian Antioch who ended up rejecting the gospel. They were invited first. Paul and Barnabas preached the gospel to the Jews first, but they didn't accept it because in their pride, they didn't actually believe that they needed it. Just like the unworthy ones in the parable. The king is throwing a lavish feast with the very best food and drink and entertainment imaginable. And he invited me? Well, you know what? The food that I have is better. I don't need what the king has. I'm staying home. And in fact, you know what? It really kind of hacks me off that the king would insinuate that I need his food, that his food is better than my food. So the next guy that comes to invite me to the king's feast is really going to get it from me. And Jesus is saying that is the heart of unbelief, of rejection of the gospel invitation to come to Jesus for salvation. It's the heart that feels like what Jesus has is not what we need. It's the heart that that assumes that what we have is sufficient and what we have is better. It's the heart that resents God for extending this offer to all who will come to receive what He freely gives and would rather stay home and do things their way. That is what leads to everlasting death. That is what causes people to perish eternally. People perish because they choose to reject Christ and they refuse to believe and put their trust in Him. And that choice, rooted in the sinfulness of their hearts, shuts them out from eternal life. In John chapter 5, Jesus said this to unbelievers. He said, you refuse to come to me. It's on you. If you go to hell, if you spend eternity under the condemnation of God, it's because you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Later in John 8, he said, unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. Eternal condemnation, eternal damnation, isn't the result of God being a capricious tyrant. 
God takes no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked, Ezekiel says in chapter 18 and chapter 33. God is patient, Peter says, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance, 2 Peter 3, verse 9. God sent His only begotten Son to die so that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. All that call on the name of Jesus will be saved. The reason people aren't, the reason people perish in their sins is that in their stubborn, sinful, prideful unbelief, they reject the invitation of the Gospel to come to Jesus and be saved. And Paul and Barnabas are saying, don't do it. Don't reject it. Now, we're going to wait until next week to take the time that we need to look at the final response to the gospel here in Acts 13, which is the response of joyful acceptance, which is born out of faith and gratitude to God, which is a work that God accomplishes for today. If you are someone who has heard this gospel, and who has said and who has been saying, it's not for me. I'm, I don't really think I'm a sinner that's worthy of the wrath of God. I, I don't believe I need what He's offering. I don't need to go to His feast. I, I, I'd rather stay home. I've got everything I need already. And what I have is better than what He gives. I don't believe in parachutes. I pray for you, if that's you today, I pray for you that God will open your eyes. That God will show you the reality of your sin. That God will convince you how desperately you need, like we all need, the free grace of Jesus. And I would plead with you as you plummet towards eternity. Come to Jesus. And for all who do believe, We're going to come to this table, and as we come to the table, if your faith is firmly rooted in Jesus, then come with a grateful heart that is confident in the great freedom that Jesus freely gives. And come confessing that you need His grace every single day, every step of the way, in order to endure and to persevere and to continue in the faith and to hold firm until the very end. And come confessing that you've stumbled this week. Come confessing that sin remains in you. Come hearing the voice of Jesus say, I don't condemn you. Come hearing Him say, I know. I know sin remains in you. I know you've fallen down. And come and receive the grace that He always gives to get up. Come and receive the strength that is always sufficient to keep running with endurance and growing in holiness. And for all of us who know this grace, who know Jesus, who are known by Jesus, who have come, who have received so freely, I pray this. I pray that we are all filled with this desperate sense of urgency to freely give as we have freely received. To go storming the streets as the servants of the King and inviting any and all who will come. To not be intimidated by 
the rejection of this world, by the reviling of this world, but to stand firm for the truth, to stand firm against all the lies, and to do it in the love of God, the love of Christ, which is a love for all that is right and true according to His Word, and it is also a love for the lost, whom He came to save. They desperately need to hear the call of the Gospel. And I know it's hard to do it, and I know you feel like you're just going to get shot down and reviled and rejected. So what good's it going to do anyway? And you're not capable? I know you feel that way. The Gospel's capable. They just need to hear it. And we need to be filled with a love for the lost that compels us to preach it. To call people. Because the power of the Gospel is the power of God to save their souls eternally. And so as we run with endurance until the very end, that doesn't just mean keeping ourselves from falling away into sin and unbelieving rejection of God's truth. It means that, but it also means growing in grace and growing in godly obedience to every command of God our King, including and especially the command to go to bring the Gospel to the ends of the earth, to let the light shine and to make disciples. So go and plead and pray and preach and beg people to come to Christ. Let's pray together for the grace and the strength and the courage and the love that we all need to remain firm and to remain steadfast, to remain faithful to our King. Until the end, let's pray. Our God and our Father, we thank You for these words. We thank You for the truth that they proclaim to us. And in light of them, Father, we pray for what we need from You, which is what we already have, which is what You've already given, which is what is ours in abundant supply. All of the grace, all of the strength, all of the power that we need to run this race with endurance. Father, fix our eyes on Jesus, who is both the author and the finisher of our faith. Keep our minds rooted and grounded on the things that are above the eternal things, the unseen things, that we might endure, that we might persevere, that we might grow and thrive in holiness and obedience, and that, Father, the light of Your truth and love might shine from us, and that we might be faithful to go and to plead with people to come. And so, Father, would You use Your church and would You empower us all to be Your servants in this world and to invite people faithfully to come to Christ and be saved. Glorify Yourself, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. On page 11 of your bulletins, you'll find this hymn that we're going to sing. I forgot to put the title of it there, but it is just the first line of the hymn. O church, arise and put your armor on and hear the call of Christ our captain. Let's stand together in response to God's word and let's sing it together to him and to his glory.